0: Good morning. If you have a Bible, please open with me to Psalm chapter 130. Psalm 130. My name's Curtis, if you haven't met me. I have a, my wife is standing over there. Her name's Janet, and we have a three-year-old named Hudson and a three-month-old named Haddon. And my parents are also there too. I want to try not to embarrass them. Uh, we don't. So Psalm 130. We don't. We don't know who wrote Psalm 130. That's okay. Some guess David wrote it. Uh, others uh, think that you can't know. Uh, scholars are, are unsure. But we, we do know this: it was inspired by God, and it's for our good and for His glory. We know that this text will be helpful for us. And our, our text particularly is about cultivating the fear of God in our lives. More particularly, it's one massive way that God brings about the fear of himself in his people. But before we consider how to grow in the fear of the Lord, we need to ask, what is the fear of God? What is the fear of God? Maybe, maybe you've heard someone say, That'll put the fear of God in them, and usually they mean you'll be terrified, and you're going to do what they say, right? Well, terrified maybe is right in some sense when we're considering his judgment, but as Christians, we're commanded to fear God. So surely as Christians who are supposed to see God as their father, there's a difference between being terrified... And a different kind of fear of God. And so I think as a Christian, it's a little bit different. I'm going to borrow David Wells' definition. He says that the fear of the Lord is God holding weight in our lives. God holding weight. So what is weighty to you affects how you live. It affects how you live. So much so that when you face a decision... Whatever is most weighty to you, whatever holds the most ground in your life, whatever you think is going to affect you the most is going to affect how you live. So here's an example from Genesis 39, 6 to 9. This is Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused. And, and said so to his master's wife, had, listen, to listen to the reason. Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's talking about Potiphar. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything for me except you, because you are his wife. It's like, Potiphar gave me everything. I'm not going to take his wife. But look at the main reason. How then, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God. So what's grounding Joseph here, and she comes day after day, asking to sleep with him. What grounds Joseph is an awareness of God. God, The awareness of God and sinning against him is so real that he will not sleep with her. He will not. We need this, don't we? We need this too. Maybe it's not Potiphar's wife, Maybe it's the man or the woman at the office or your smartphone. We need, we need a deep grip of the fear of God that will keep us from sinning against him. This is what Christians need. And, and the Bible is very clear that we are to grow in our fear of the Lord. Uh, this is one example of a command. is Deuteronomy 31, 12. Assemble the people. Men, women, and little ones, and, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. It's a learned thing, and be careful to do the, all, all the words of this law. So, lear, learning to fear the Lord leads to being careful to obey Him. And so, the question is, how do we grow in our fear of the Lord? And that's what that's what our text is about. How are we going to grow in, in the fear of the Lord? How does God make us fear him? There are many ways that we can grow in the fear of the Lord, but our text has one massive way that you may not have thought of. Our text teaches us that the forgiveness of God produces fear. Let's look at it together. Let's read all of Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. That's our verse. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Father, we, we need your help. We want to fear you. We want to walk before you humbly. We want to tremble at your word. Father, please... By your spirit, make this text land in the hearts of your people and draw unbelievers to yourself, Lord. We thank you so much for your word. Please accompany my words with power for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at how forgiveness produces fear, especially verse 4 there. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And so just think of it like a, a diamond. Sometimes you look at diamonds at different angles. What we're going to do is the diamond would be forgiveness and how it produces fear. We're going to look at kind of different angles of forgiveness and how it's producing fear in the people of God. And so we'll be in our text and we'll also look at examples out in other places in Scripture as well. So the first, the first one is forgiveness makes us thankful. This is... This is the first three verses here in Psalm 130. So this, this psalmist here is crying out for mercy from God. He knows his sins are serious. So listen to how he cries out. Verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Isn't that an interesting statement? God, be attentive to me. Sounds like Proverbs. Sounds like the Proverbs talking to his son. Listen to me, listen to me. He's saying that to God. Because he's wanting the ear of God. He's like, I need your ear, Lord. And this is much different than Proverbs. This is not commanding God. This is, God, please listen. If you don't listen, I'm going to be destroyed. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And this is key. In verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities... Oh, Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? And the reality is nobody could stand if he marked our iniquities. If he, iniquities just meaning sin, our sins. And so if God was taking account of all of our sins and we would had to stand before him, we would have no way of standing if it was just based on the basis of his justice. And so the, the main thing here is what God did to get rid of our sins causes thankfulness. So He He marked His Son with our sins. Instead, His iniquities, instead of marking us with the sins and all the, the judgment that was supposed to come on us, He marks His Son. And so He's able to forgive us. And that's that is how He ends up looking forward. The psalmist will look forward later in the Psalm as well, hoping the Lord He's gonna bring forgiveness. And that's going to come from Christ. Christ is the one who takes on all of our iniquities instead of us. And so the greater the act of love, the greater the thankfulness. So this is, forgiveness is producing thankfulness in us because he decided to put our iniquities on his son instead of us. And so I take this illustration from Paul Washer. He, he, so basically the illustration is this. So say you come to my house and I have a picture on my wall. Of this guy. And you're like, okay, so who is that guy? Why is he on your wall? Well, he bought me a stick of gum once. Okay. So what? Yeah, we actually, actually, I've been teaching my kids about this guy on the wall since, he was boor- since they've been born. Because he's so important to me, he gave me a stick of gum. Actually, I've even wrote, written two songs about him. Because he gave me this piece of gum. It's, I'm very thankful for this guy. That just wouldn't make any sense. But say, I was surfing one time when I was 19, thought I was pretty in shape, so I thought I'd go a little further into the sea, and, and a wave took me, I hit my head in a rock, knocked unconscious, left to die, and this man came, swam out, brought me to shore, and saved me. I was surely going to die. Now it makes a little more sense that I have this guy on the wall, and we sing songs about him, because he wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them kids you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for this guy cuz i was going to die out in the ocean and this guy saved me and so the greater the act of love the greater the thankfulness the greater the act of love the greater the thankfulness and so you think about jesus you should have died in your sin we should we should be gone we, we should not be here. We should be going to hell. Every single person deserves to be in hell for our sins. That's the reality. And, and the more you think about that, sometimes it's like, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about that I deserve to be in hell. The more you think about it, the more you're thankful. And the more you tremble at his word, the more you're like, God, thank you so much. And he holds more weight in your life. You start thinking, wait, I deserve to die. But he, he forgave me. That, that he might be feared, right? right? So, so what ends up happening is you have this thankfulness because you're thinking about him all the time. Every time you see that picture on the wall or whatever it is, you're thinking about the death of Christ and it produces more fear. So thankfulness is a part of, of fearing and forgiveness leads to thankfulness. That's the first one. Second, second forgiveness makes us loyal. Forgiveness makes us loyal. If God should have killed us, but he didn't, how can we not live for him? That's the argument basically in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is so key. This is, this is so important. We need to get this. Jesus died for your sake. So if you're a Christian here today, Jesus died for your sake. He did not just die for sin in general. He just wasn't thinking of no one on that cross. He died for your sake. This is Isaiah 53. Listen to the, the way they describe the death of Christ. In Isaiah 53, prophesying about the death of Christ, verses 4 to 6. This is, listen to all the hour, okay? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. This is not just grief in general. These are our sorrows. These are our griefs. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, real transgressions, ours. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've all sinned. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity of us all. Do you understand what this means? So it's not just sin in general, it's your your lustful thoughts, it's your everything that you've you've done sinfully. It's going after pornography, it's also getting angry with your wife. Everything that you actually did was paid for on that cross. Everything that you do, all of your sins are paid for. And so when you think of Jesus, you think of his hands. Think of the, the nails in his hands and blood, blood coming out. Those were not just for sin in general. Those were for your actual sins, your past sins, your present sins, your future sins. He died to pay for those. He died to pay for those. When you see his pierced side, pierced for our transgressions. I love that. He, he was, was pierced, pierced in the side. side. You, you think, think about that. that. Think, think about, about your, your sins. sins. These are my sins that are being paid for. When the, and ultimately, the wrath of God, the judgment of God. You deserve to be in hell, and, and God's judgment was put on him instead of you. And the, it's a wonderful thing when you think about your transgressions that way, all of your slander. Think about the times you've, you've used your words poorly. Think about all those times you've done all these horrible things. You've talked about people badly when you shouldn't have. You've gossiped about people. And, and these sins, these real sins, were put on Christ. And, and what that does is it, it's like, oh, my sins were on him. That'll make you loyal. That'll make you live for him. And, and that's the reality, is your actual sins were dealt with on that cross. So won't you live for him? Won't you live for him? Forgiveness produces loyalty. And it makes you careful to obey him. Like I, I just, when I think about him, and I think about that cross, and I think about all the sins I've done, I just love him. And I, I must, I want to follow him. And, it, and he holds more weight in your life that way. And he starts to make you fear him by forgiving your sins. And so forgiveness makes us thankful, and forgiveness makes us loyal. Third, Forgiveness makes us forgive. And so this is really getting at obedience springing from forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And so that, that's really, scholars kind of say, well, is it, is it like do it the same way Jesus did? Or is it because he forgave you? You should forgive others, and most of them disagree. It's both. So forgiving your brother and sister in Christ comes easier when you think about the forgiveness you've received. It comes a lot easier when you realize your actual sins have been dealt with on that cross. You, all the horrible things you've done, all the horrible things you've thought, your actual sinfulness has been dealt with on the cross. And so then when someone sins against you, it's not that serious. I'm not saying that when someone does something to you, it doesn't hurt. I'm saying it, it's not as bad as what you've done. And the reality is, your sins have all been paid for, and when you realize that, when it actually comes into your mind, and you're like, I can't believe I'm forgiven, it leads to fearing God and starting to forgive other people. And it produces more and more love for people. There, there have been times when I sin, sin against my wife in some, some grievous, grievous, grievous ways. And, and, and there's, there's been a, a couple times particularly I can think of that I'm like, she shouldn't forgive me. She shouldn't forgive me for this. And, and when she looks at me and forgives me freely, out of, her, out of her own, just freely forgiving me, and she doesn't make me, make me pay her back, doesn't make me do anything. She's just, I, I forgive you. That makes me not want to sin against her again. I don't want to do that again. And, and this is what forgiveness ought to do in the Christian, is it ought to produce a forgiving heart towards our brothers and sisters. And so cultivating a forgiving heart for others is a demonstration of the fear of God, and it comes from considering the forgiveness you have in Christ. So forgiveness makes us forgive, but it also, kind of on the other side of the coin, makes unforgiveness foolish. It makes unforgiveness foolish. So this is the parable of the unforgiving servant. I'm going to read the whole, the whole parable. It's helpful. It's helpful. So think about how ridiculous it is to not forgive people. That's what, that's what we're getting at here in the unforgiving servant. Peter comes up to Jesus. Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Lots of times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servant. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, with all that he had, and payment to be made. So the picture here is this guy, if it, to put it in modern language, millions of dollars, can't pay it back. And he, he can't pay him back, so he puts him in, in prison, basically. Uh, then we're in verse 20 here. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And listen to this. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Millions of dollars. But when that same servant went out, he found out of his, one of his own fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So maybe a few months' wages. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. Sound familiar? He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave, I forgave you, you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. So the picture here is forgiveness ought to produce forgiveness. You should, you should be forgiving other people. It's it's utterly it's really ridiculous. ridiculous. This, this parable, parable makes, makes you sick, sick to your, to your stomach. stomach when you think I'm about it. Like I, I can't believe he did, he did that. that. How can I'm you get forgive, forgiven all that debt, debt, debt and then not, not, not forgive, forgive the other, the other person. person? It's, 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 it's horrible. horrible. But, but Christian, Christian the, the, point the point of this text is, is it makes make no sense, sense, sense for you not, not to forgive your brother or sister. You've been forgiven so much. You've been forgiven so much. And the sin against you cannot outweigh the sin you had against God. And so you ought to forgive. And so, forgiveness so, our verse, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Forgiveness produces the fear of the Lord, which ends in obedience, more forgiving others, more tenderheartedness. And so, fifth, forgiveness makes us love. Forgiveness makes us love. He who is forgiven much loves much. So, this is from Luke 7. 36 to 47, another really helpful parable here that really illustrates what forgiveness does in a person. So, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. So, he did eat with Jesus. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this he said to himself if this man were a prophet he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him she is a sinner she's known for her sin and Jesus answering said to him Simon I have something to say to you and he answered say it teacher and here's a bearable a certain moneylender had two debtors one owed 500 denarii and the other 50 so big number small number but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, this is the point, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. That's the point of the parable. If you're forgiven a lot, you love more. You just do. If you think you've been forgiven little, you don't love very much. Like the stick of gum, right? Who cares if you gave me a stick of gum? But he, he, saved he saved my, my life. life. When I was out in the sea, I was going to die. Okay. I love that guy. I love him a lot for what he did. And, and so so the, the important thing to realize this is not, okay, this person's more of a wicked sinner, so she loves more. And you're, you're a better person, so you can't love as much. That's not, that's not the point. The point is the Pharisees didn't realize how much they needed to confess. They didn't realize how much sin they had. And so maybe you're in this room and you're thinking, well, I'm a lot better than the rest of the people in here, so I guess I can't love as much. Well, that's, that's just not the case. That's just not the case. I know that because the Bible teaches we, have, we are depraved. We, we sin a lot in a lot of ways. Everyone in, in different ways, but we do sin. And so the thing here is confession is actually going to help you fear the Lord more. Confession is going to help you fear the Lord more. The more sin you have... The more you can confess, the more you can realize the forgiveness you have in Christ, and the more you'll fear him. Okay, so, so when I think of confession, I think in two categories. This is helpful. Maybe you can't think of any sins to confess. Maybe you're, you're like, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to confess. Maybe you have lots of sins to confess, and you should start con- confessing them. But I'm going to give you two categories that can be helpful for confessing sin, so that you can realize what you've been forgiven and walk more in fear of the Lord. Sins of commission and sins of omission. Big words. Sins of commission are those sins that you should not do, but you, you do anyway. So it's kind of just think of like, okay, I shouldn't be lusting. I shouldn't be getting angry. Those kinds of things that you, sh- you should not do, but you do. Those, those, are, those are sins of commission. So I want to give you some examples so you can be helped in confessing your sin. So things like getting drunk. So if you get drunk, that's a sin. You need to confess it and find forgiveness from it. Lusting after another person. Gossiping. So when you talk about someone behind their back and, and often uh, slandering goes along with it, talking badly about people. These are categories that you can have in your mind when you're trying to think of con- confessing. Lying. Uh, Worshipping an idol, so literally going out and worshiping. So th- these sorts of things are things that you should you should not do, but you did, and so you can confess those and find forgiveness that you might fear more. Uh, and then sins of omission. These ones maybe are, you don't think of as much. These are things you should do, but you don't. So think of sharing the gospel with someone. Well, I had time to share the gospel. I, I easily could have. I wasn't cheating at work or something to do it. But I didn't want to. I didn't want to. But, you know what? I didn't get angry with my wife and I didn't, I didn't look at pornography or anything, so I'm pretty good. Well, no. You didn't love the person in front of you and share the gospel with them. You didn't try to share. I'm not, I'm not saying force their hand. I'm talking about real sins. Not, not caring enough about the person to share with them. Another one of omission would be deciding not to serve someone in need so maybe, maybe there's someone in the church or in the, in the community you know a need you have the means to, to give it but you withhold you withhold because you don't want to there's, this is a sin of omission you're, you're not doing what you ought to do and that, so that can be that can be helpful for confession not giving not giving and that's, that's including at church, but just in general, this is kind of the, the sense of omission. You're not, you're not willing to give. You're not willing to give your time. You're not willing to give your money. And, and it's sinful at times when you're able to and when the Lord is calling you to do it. So these are, these, this category can be a little fuzzy sometimes. We're kind of like, oh, well, you know, I couldn't share the gospel because I didn't have time. Or I'm talking about real, actual opportunities to do these things, and you're not doing them. This is, that's, that's sinful. Sin. No, this this one, one is is sinful. probably one that happens often. And Peter, he talks about not living with your wife in an understanding way. And uh, this one I think of often because sometimes you, you're thinking, okay, am I am I loving my wife? Well, yeah, okay. Like we 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 hang out together. I don't I don't yell at her. I don't hit her. Uh, we we spend time together. I I try and I try and provide for her. Those kinds of things. These are all things you're trying to do, but then when it comes to living with her in an understanding way, you just have no idea what she actually likes. You don't care enough to get to know her. You don't want to spend time with her to actually understand what would make her feel like you love her. And these seem like small things, but these are real sins. And these are things you can confess and find forgiveness that you might tremble and not do them again and live more pleasing to the Lord. Another sin of omission would be ignoring the poor. Ignoring the poor. Sometimes you walk down Calgary or wherever uh, and see a homeless person, and you don't even think, how can I help this person? You have no concern for them. That's a sin of omission. That's, That's not doing something you could do. You have to at least have concern. Have concern for them. God cares about the poor. That's, that's reality. If you, don't, if you don't ever have a thought and you see a person who's struggling on the ground, that's, that's a problem. And then ultimately, I think the biggest one is not loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So this can be a helpful one in confession, just thinking through your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How can I love God with all of those? How have I not loved God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And and then, as you do confess those things, confession sounds like such a terrible thing. I shouldn't do it, but it's really a privilege for a Christian. It's a privilege to be able to confess and have your sins forgiven. And so we can come and get our sins forgiven, and just pray that we would not do it again, whatever this sin is, or or not do it again, not not do it. So forgiveness makes us love, and this kind of leads to the next one, number six. Forgiveness makes us pursue holiness. Makes us pursue holiness. This is 1 Peter 1, 14 to 19. Some of my favorite verses in the Bible. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So don't go back to your former sins. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, and here, here it is, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing, here's the reason, amazing, knowing that you were ransomed, you were bought from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So because you've been purchased by blood, you conduct yourself with fear, that's the argument. So, if he had just bought you with gold or silver, so in modern terms, if he just paid billions of dollars for you, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. He did more than that. He shed his blood for you. As a real person, God the Son, came man, really did shed his blood. It's real blood. Didn't just pay money. He, he used his own blood to buy you. And he, and he bought you. So, Consider the cost of your forgiveness. Jesus shed his blood for you, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So I think David Platt is helpful here. When he was talking about these verses, he said, fear living in a way that shows the blood of Jesus is not infinitely precious to you. So you, you, we care about what's most precious to us. And if the blood that paid for our sins is precious, precious to us, we, we live differently. You live differently. And so the blood of, Christ, the blood of Jesus is, is very precious to Christians. It's very precious. And it leads to more fear. It leads to more fear of Him. I just don't want to sin against Him. Because look what He did for me. I just don't want to, I don't want to sin against Him. And that, that, that's how forgiveness produces fear in that way. Um, remember a verse, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And forgiveness ought to produce fear in you. Fear of sinning against your God whom you love. Okay, and the seventh and eighth one here kinda go together. I'll start with the seventh one. Forgiveness reassures our heart. This is amazing. So first John three, nineteen to twenty. John's a little bit different how he writes, so get ready for it. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. So what's he saying? So the point here is, sometimes you feel condemned. Sometimes Christians feel condemned. We feel, and we just feel like we can't get over it. We can't get over our condemnation. I just feel so guilty about my sins. But the point here is, God is greater than our heart. What is he saying by that? God says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God God is saying, no, 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 listen to me. You're not condemned. And we need to realize the Holy Spirit doesn't tell you you're condemned. That's not what he's doing. Satan is pointing the finger saying you're condemned. The Holy Spirit is saying, Abba, Father, he loves you. This This is a factor. And we need to realize that we need to believe the scriptures that our hearts can be refreshed. God is greater than your heart. When you feel condemned, you're not. You're not condemned if you've trusted in Christ. And so God is greater than your heart. And so this is, a, this is an amazing reality. And so when you're, you're feeling condemned and you feel like your guilt is too heavy on you, that you can't handle it, the Spirit is saying, call on him Abba, Father. Call him Father. He loves you. He's a father. Every single act he does towards his people are loving. So if he, if he, even if he's disciplining you, if he's correcting you to go in a different direction with severe disciplines, maybe cancer or, or something serious, that's, that's an evidence of his love for you. That's not an evidence of you being condemned. And so that, that leads to the, the eighth one, which kind of goes similarly. Forgiveness cleanses our conscience. So a cleansed conscience empowers service to God. So our conscience is just, this is just where we live. This is where everybody lives, okay? So when your conscience goes off, you feel guilty, basically, is the gist of what a conscience is. So it's, it's basically telling you, and our conscience is kind of growing. As we read the Bible, we kind of see sins that maybe we didn't think were bad, and we start realizing, oh, that is bad. And so our conscience helps us realize our guilt. At Hebrews 9, 13 to 14 says this, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of deviled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that's talking about Old Testament uh, law, how much more will the blood of Christ, new covenant, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So a purified conscience is an amazing thing. This kind of goes a little bit along with him being our father. It's it's dealing with guilt. So maybe you're an unbeliever here and you, you go to bed at night and you just feel guilty. I, de- I just I can't get rid of this guilt feeling. I just have done so many wrong things. I can't believe can't believe that I, I keep doing them. And you can't sleep. Or maybe you don't care. And you've seared your conscience. Either way, you are guilty. And you need your sins forgiven. You need your sins forgiven. And the, and the beauty of the Christian life, this is so beautiful. You know what's going to produce joy in your life? It's a cleansed conscience. When you, you go to bed at night and you know my sins are forgiven, that is a wonderful thing. And then you have all this joy and you just want to serve God. And it's not because you feel guilty. It's because you're free. It's because you're free. And that's basically what he's arguing. Do you see that there in verse 14? Or I guess... Yep. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So God gets his people to serve not by making them feel guilty, but by cleansing their conscience, by making you realize your sins are forgiven. And so sometimes we try to pay God back and it's just a bad idea. It's a bad idea Uh, we try to have better obedience, but it, the reality is, if you're an unbeliever, it's like you have a five billion dollar debt, and and you try and give God a mini egg for it. <laughs> mini eggs are good, but five billion dollars, and it and it's dirty too. It's bribing in the dirt, you know. So it's not even the it's not the best mini egg, and it doesn't work. Uh, and so. And so it doesn't work for your conscience. Instead, what you need is forgiveness for the whole debt. Forgiveness for the whole debt. And you know what's amazing? When you get forgiven your whole debt, all your sin, now that mini anguish which was useless to God, He actually likes your obedience. Your obedience was useless before and it was tainted with so much sin. Now our, now our obedience, still tainted with sin, but He sees the blood of Christ. He sees it and, he's, and it actually smells good to him. It's a sweet aroma to God. I, I get to smell good things a lot because my wife is a good cook. And, and it's a wonderful thing to smell supper coming. And, and uh, that's, what, that's what our obedience is. When you obey God, God loves it. It's a sweet aroma. He does it. he just, I love this. When you pray, it's like incense to his, to his nostrils. It's a wonderful thing. And so, so we go from pretty much useless obedience to a cleansed conscience to obedience that God loves. And so that's how forgiveness produces the fear of the Lord in that way. Okay, and the last one, this is in Psalm 130. Forgiveness gives us hope. Forgiveness gives us hope. So let's read verses five to eight in Psalm 130 here. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. And then he calls Israel to do it. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And so, just a quick Old Testament picture, You you got the people of God waiting for God to provide the sacrifice to forgive their sins. They're waiting, They're looking forward. And so they're trusting in the character of God and the promises of God. He's saying, Israel, hope in the Lord. This is his character. He's steadfast love. He's full of steadfast love, plentiful redemption. He will redeem us. He will redeem us. But we know Christ came. He already did. Paid for our sins. Amazing. So he died for our sins. And so we, we don't we don't hope that way. We look back. And so one, one author put it, before the cross, we were paid on credit. And after the cross, we were paid on debit. So, credit card. Okay, (laughs) I'll I'll leave it at that. But we do still have hope as Christians. We do look back at the cross, and we remember we're forgiven. But this produces actually hope in the future for us. Okay, and so we hope in a future salvation. This is the greatest thing in the world for the Christian. This is the greatest thing in the world. Revelation 22, 4 we will see his face. So there's, a, there's coming a day, I was talking to Hudson about this, my three-year-old. I've been talking to him regularly about how Jesus is going to come in the clouds and come for his people. And the first time he came to deal with sin, second time, he's coming for those who are eagerly waiting for him. And uh, Hudson's like, when, when I see Jesus in the clouds, I'm not going to disobey. That's what he said. I'm like, yeah. I ended up explaining, explaining the gospel to him a little more. but uh, I, That's the reality, though. When Jesus comes, we're, we're, if you think about the coming of Christ, if you're taking spiritual glances at the clouds regularly, then you're, you're not going to sin. You're not going to disobey because you're hoping for what's coming. And it, and it is so sure in your mind that you will. He is coming. That's what Peter says. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully there. Look, look to the clouds. Is he, is he back yet? Is he coming? Okay, I want to live before him. I want to live before him. He's, he's forgiven my sins. I'm looking back. Yeah, he forgave my sins. I'm looking for him to come back. Come back. I'm waiting for you. That's what it means to eagerly eagerly be waiting. And it has a purifying effect. It has a purifying effect. It makes you walk before him with more fear. 1 John 3.3 3 says, Everyone who thus hopes in Christ, hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. So hope in Christ. Realize you've been forgiven and set your mind fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Next time he's coming, for those who are eagerly waiting for him. And yeah, so redemption holds. We see nine different facets. There's more. The way that... uh, with God there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And so, so consider, consider some ways you can cultivate fear by thinking about the forgiveness of God. Confess your sins. Confess your sins. Think through what sins you've committed. Maybe you haven't done this in a while. Maybe you haven't thought about all the different kinds of sins that you may have committed. So confess your sins. Think about the, the precious blood that was shed for you. Think about how precious it was. How, how it wasn't gold or silver. Think about how he died for your actual sins. And, and as you do, as you think about the forgiveness you have in Christ, let it produce the fear of God in you. Let's pray. Father, I uh, just thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you are a God who delights to show kindness to your people. And uh, we just thank you so much. Uh, I just pray that you would, you would transform us by the forgiveness we have in Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen.